And this is part of the, the work of revolution, right? It is literally kind of forging a brand new path. It's turning old patterns, old behaviors, old beliefs on their head. Welcome to Little Revolutions, brought to you by Frida. On today's episode, we speak to Ruby Warrington, the author of Women Without Kids. So often, as women, we are expected to be mothers and we're seen as a problem to be solved if we are childless. Whether you're like Ruby and childless by choice, or you're like me and childless by circumstance, being a woman who is not a mother can sometimes feel subversive. Ruby and I dig into how to carve out space for ourselves away from societal expectations of motherhood. Thank you so much for joining us. Where in the world are you these days? Um, I am in Miami, Florida. That's nice and warm. In my mind, the sun never stops shining in Florida, so... It doesn't. It's the sunshine state for a reason, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining this transatlantic call then. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So um, I know you know what the general premise of this conversation is and this podcast is, but um, I really wanted to talk to you because of the the larger cultural conversations that are always happening around us. It's like what the role of a woman is. And for those of us who are childless... We're often seen as a problem to be solved, something to be fixed. Um, but before we get into any of that, and you've written so much about that and have a book coming out soon. But before we get into that, we don't like to define people here. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself and define yourself however you want our community to know you. Sure. My name is Ruby Warrington. Um, and I am, I think of myself as a writer and editor. I'm also a wife, a sister, a daughter. Um, and a, hopefully a, a good friend. I, I really value my friendships and um, I put a lot of myself into my friendships. I really love that definition because you are the first person we have interviewed who included relationships in, <laughs> in your introduction and your definition of yourself. And it's so telling and related to the conversation we're about to have where for, for women particularly, I feel like at least for me, very often... Like even we have a restaurant next door to our office here. And the, one of the first times I went there with some colleagues and the person who runs the place asked us about our relationship status, whether we were single, dating, married, if we had children. Huh. And as soon as I said, oh, no, I don't have kids. I'm single. They were like, OK, so let me set you up and you need to have kids. That was like an immediate like, all right, you know, wow, you're, you're a problem. like you're a problem to be solved. You're this is this is a problem. Like clearly and it wasn't that I said, you know, I'm unhappy or something needs to change. And your work deals so much with that and touches on that. And I would love for you to just get us started with telling us <laughs> how you decided to tackle this big question. Well, it's almost like it's um, it's a perceived problem in our lives. And I think it's almost a perceived problem for society, too. The fact that women are and have been consistently for the course of the past century having fewer and fewer children is often spoken about in quite alarmist terms by politicians, by demographers, um, by economists who, who freak out about the fact we're going to have an aging economy and we're not going to have enough young taxpaying workers to support our aging population. Um, but yes, in your case, I'm sorry you experienced that, but it's sadly not uncommon. It's often offered with the, the most loving of intentions, right? Um, just the, and it stems from this assumption, I think, that unless you have a child, your life is somehow empty, there's something missing, um, and that, that surely this must be something that you want to find for yourself. So 
I knew from a very young age, like from my early childhood, really, although I didn't have the language for it at that point, that I always had an inkling that motherhood, it was more so actually that motherhood wasn't something I ever saw in my future. It wasn't something I aspired to. I didn't play babies with my dolls when I was a child. Um, I didn't fantasize about my, how, how many kids I'd have, what their names would be. That just wasn't in my consciousness at all. And of course, it wasn't really until my early 20s um, that other people's opinions about this started to infiltrate my world. And I, and I really began to realize that this, oh, was something that would be expected of me. And that actually it was seen as quite unusual that I didn't want a child. And beyond even unusual, perhaps there was maybe something wrong with me. Um, and of course, as we do, I internalized a lot of that external messaging and a lot of those external voices um, and began to question my own, what had always felt very true and just sort of matter of fact, knowing that I didn't want to be a mother. And I began to question that very deeply and spent most of my 20s and 30s in a state of questioning. Questioning that brought up a lot of shame, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-gaslighting um, um, and a lot of questioning. And so, yeah, I suppose it wasn't until I reached my early 40s and other people stopped asking when I was going to have a child <laughs> and why this was something I wasn't pursuing in my life, um, that those questions started to ebb away internally as well. And I actually realized that there had never been a question for me. This wasn't something I wanted for my life. I didn't feel like there was anything missing and that that was absolutely okay. And I decided to make this the subject of my new book, which is my fourth book, um, because I just, I wanted to sort of offer younger women who were perhaps having that same experience that I had, the, um, the reassurance that your own inner knowing about this is, is really the most important thing. Um, and also to offer women my age and even older who perhaps have been led to believe, oh, you will regret this at some point, or that there isn't in fact something wrong with you that no, it's actually perfectly okay. And what I discovered in my research then kind of blew up the, the, the subject even bigger for me. Um, not only was I meeting more and more women who felt the same as me, having very much felt like the only one, I now in my early 40s realized that many of my friends, many people my age also didn't have children for many different reasons. And then, in fact, younger generations, women in their 20s and 30s, were questioning whether they wanted to become mothers in much, much greater numbers than they had been when I was in that stage of my life. Um, and then zooming out even further, <laughs> I realized that, as we touched on, the birth rate globally in the majority, in fact, all countries across the globe has been declining steadily over the past century. Um, the drop has become even steeper this century. And that is the result of largely women having fewer children because of greater access to birth control, greater opportunities in terms of career and living independent lives um, um, and more access to safe abortions, for example. Um, but that also it was reflected of the, the fact that more women are having no children at all. And so I really wanted to a valorize the path of non motherhood, whether it's a conscious choice 
whether it's the culmination of a series of smaller choices and circumstances, or whether somebody has found that they can't have children. Um, again, infertility is on the rise as well, and this is largely actually attributed to environmental factors. And then the fourth piece really in those kind of reasons is that more and more people, of course, are questioning the ethics of bringing new people onto the planet while we are facing such environmental um, degradation. And people are very afraid of what will it mean for my children to be born in 2020 or 2030? You know, where are we going as a species? It's a huge subject that was still very largely unaddressed and unacknowledged, not least because it is actually central to women's lives. Um, and the questioning that we have and the questioning that we are subject to around our reproductive status and reproductive intentions can be very um, damaging, it can be very isolating. And so I wanted to create a, an open, um, non-judgmental conversation about this subject. You touched on so many things I want to jump into immediately. Um, first, I really love the word that you use, which is questioning and not decision, because it's it's often portrayed as like, here are the childless women, right? And we're on one side and we are like the people who have decided to rebel. And there are all the other labels, whether like you're enough, not enough. Are you selfish for making like, the, what is your role in society? There's a lot of that. But often it's a process, right? Whether it starts at a very young age, like it did for you, whether it starts in your 20s, whether it starts in your 30s. And as you've touched on, there's, there's so many reasons that lead to the questioning where it's partly economic right now, especially here and, and in the US where you are, where it's really unaffordable. Childcare is not really affordable for the average parent. Um, there's climate, there's biology, there's circumstance, there is what you touch on in your coming book, like the, the family histories that we are contending with and wrestling with. There is our role in society, the scope we have for our own ambitions outside of parenthood. And if there is someone on the other side, because for us, we want to have these conversations also like for the younger version of you, for the younger version of me who's sitting there thinking about like, what do I do? Someone who is questioning and in the period of questioning, I have found for me, at least when I'm questioning these types of things, it's incredibly lonely because these aren't the conversations that are being had necessarily like at the pub with your friends around you, because the dominant narrative is the one of women having children. How did you find a space to like start questioning out loud and with other people? I feel like I'm honestly just starting that. This is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. The subhead is, um, the, the title is Women Without Kids. The subhead is the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood. And that unsung sisterhood is how I'm hoping to bring together so that we can discuss these things with others so that we're not sort of alone with our thoughts alone with our doubts alone with our fears when we talk when we talk things out when we're in communication with others we're able to make much more sense of our lives and much more sense of our kind of inner processes and so that's something i, I really want to normalize this conversation i want to just normalize something that's actually very central to people's lives i i would actually say that given some of the factors that you you sort of like spelled out there that in the 2020s, it's actually completely normal for the majority of women to question whether or not they want to become a parent. Maybe not whether they want to, whether they have the capacity for parenting. And so I think that is something that is being spoken of more slightly. But with this book, I mean, I'm really encouraging people to read this book with a friend, with a family member, in a book group, 
with mums, definitely with their friends who are mums, because I think there's a huge lack of understanding from people who have always felt like they want to be parents. That's very much their path. They're really excited about becoming parents. There's a huge lack of understanding. And I hear this often. I just can't understand why someone wouldn't want to do this. And partly the book is that, well, here's why. <laughs> because it really does seek to lay out all of the, as I touched on, very, very valid reasons not to be a parent, whether they're chosen or whether they've been sort of enforced in a way. Um, and I think that fostering that understanding between mums and non-mums is another big uh, part of my mission with the book. Getting to this point of writing the book, you were clearly thinking about this a lot and living through it yourself. Were there instances where you had conversations with friends who were mums or non-mums or with other people who were thinking through this where you can think back to that conversation and say, right, that was that was the way to like, I, I know for a lot of people, even broaching the subject feels really scary, right? Like, I don't want to question my friend who had a child about their decision to have a child. <laughs> and people are going to think that I'm questioning them and I'm the rebel. And how do like, how would, how did you navigate that yourself when you were in the midst of it? Or if you still are in the midst of it, where now you can point to your book and say, read this, right. but you were, you were in that period of questioning and you were trying to find like conversation partners or to work it, work through it with the sisterhood you were finding. How are you navigating that? Well, partly my personal, I'm very, I'm actually quite comfortable with being outsider, with being the rebel. I don't necessarily find a huge degree of discomfort in that position. So I've always been quite confident or just kind of not particularly easily swayed um, by feeling like I need to fit in. So that was part of it. And that's just my personality. Um, I definitely, I, I'm also very fortunate, I think, in that my parents and my mother in particular never pressured me to have children, never implied that that was something they expected of me, never implied that I would be letting them down if I didn't. So I didn't get a huge amount of questioning in my life. I have since learned in my personal life, I mean, I have since learned that one of my best friends shared with me, people would often approach her and ask, why doesn't Ruby want to have a kid? What's, what's she doing instead? Why is that not in her path? And I find that fascinating. The, the fact that people felt intimidated or like uncomfortable about asking me directly. And I think part of that comes from this idea that there must be something horribly wrong or some horrible trauma that, or maybe you have tried and it's insensitive to ask. And again, that speaks to this, um, this underlying idea that given the opportunity, any woman would have a child. And if she can't, then surely something's wrong. <laughs> I have with that same friend had very open conversations where I have asked her, why did you have a child? Why were you so set on it? Why was it so important to you? And that's been very illuminating. It revealed lots to me, and I share some of this in the book, about the impact of our the homes that we were raised in, our family backgrounds, how we feel about work and career in general. I've always really followed my heart. And like I said, been very, very grateful and lucky to be able to pursue a career that really, truly lights me up. Not everybody has that opportunity, first and foremost. Not everybody has that same kind of drive. And actually, I realized that my drive around birthing my ideas into the world, which is what led me to journalism, which is what led me to this career as an author, was actually coming from a similar place as my friend's drive and desire to birth children into the world, which I found really fascinating. So just having that one conversation with a close friend was very validating, very illuminating, I think, for both of us. 
Um, and so what I would encourage for anyone who's listening to this, to don't be, don't be afraid to ask the question, don't be afraid to have those conversations. And if painful things do come up, that's okay too, you know? Um, I, I, I would suggest, you know, having this conversation with close friends, people you feel you can be really open with, who are very understanding of you, um, and maybe set it up with the intention that we're not going to judge one another. Let's both listen to what we have to say. It's really interesting also because, like, I'm still so shocked at the idea of someone going to your friend and asking, <laughs> right? Like, it wasn't even something they were, like, they were, like, brave enough almost to, like, approach you, but they felt like it, it was, again, a, a problem to, to be solved or something to really dig into. Um, but men don't get asked that, right? Like, we we don't go around asking men, when are you going to be, become a father? We do not. And it's, and it's, it's so, like, it's also for women we're expected we're defined so much by our relationships we're expected to become wives and mothers and that's it mm -hmm. and when you look at men who are husbands and fathers they also are defined by the things they do exactly which it's it's so hard to and it goes back to for me when i was reading your book i thought a lot about my own family and the families around me and the generation of my parents where there were very stereotypical gendered roles often in in those families where the husband went and worked and like traveled the world and did did big things with their career. And the wife was often the one who took on the predominant caregiving responsibilities. And there are so few models for us and women younger than me who who are trying to like figure out or navigate if there's a space for them in motherhood, right? right. Uh, and a space for them to birth the ideas they want to. How do they how do they navigate that? Where do they find the models? Are we making the models? I know for me, it's people who are like five years older than me who are just doing it. And I'm, I don't know how they're getting there, but they're doing it. And I'm looking at them and saying, okay, something is possible because you're doing it. And I'm curious, when you were again having these conversations with your friends, where were you looking for models? I've looked for women without kids role models my entire life. Until very recently, it was a handful of women. It was Oprah Winfrey, Helen Mirren, Gloria Steinem. <laughs> You know, there's these very few um, women who were in the public eye, at least, who didn't, who, who, who were voluntarily childless, you know? There were plenty of models of women who were having a really hard time getting pregnant, who'd experienced miscarriages, this sort of thing. And there was a lot of sympathy for women who've had those experience. And there was almost, I feel like for the, the older sort of child-free, just mentioned, there's sort of a, a kind of a, ooh, they're just a bit odd. They're kind of seen as outliers, you know, these strange creatures <laughs> who move in a whole different realm in a way. Um, and there was something, I suppose, slightly appealing about that too. I think these are a very powerful, inspiring women, like who wouldn't aspire to a life like Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> for example, you know? Um, you touched as well on the this idea of gender role models. I think one of the hardest one of the most challenging things for modern women, and I'll say modern women, to describe the cohort of women who have come of age post-second wave feminism. So since the implementation of things like birth control, legalized abortion, equal career opportunities, right? This is these are kind of these are these are developments that have had a huge impact on all the generations born from sort of the 1970s onwards. I think one of the biggest challenges for these generations of women is how do I balance being a mother with the things I want for myself personally in my life? Not only want, 
but with the kind of independence that means I don't have to be dependent on a man for my literal material survival. This was not available to women prior to the 1970s on the mass scale. Women have always worked and women have always had to work and women's work has always been massively undervalued under patriarchy and that's still a battle that we are fighting. We've made huge gains in that area, massive gains in that area. And I think the sticking point comes when we then try to balance being mothers with retaining that level of independence and autonomy over our lives. And I think that's one thing that hugely impacts women's ability to enjoy motherhood because there's this massive schism between I'm an independent woman who has created the life for myself that I want on my terms and being a mother immediately almost sets the clock back because there is has been very little development and progress in terms of how mothers and mothering are supported not least by the fact that we just still don't expect men to play an equal role in parenting it's like we expect women to play an equal role in the workplace and women have had massive opportunities in that way we still don't expect the to to, to, to the coin to kind of like flip the other side we still don't expect men to play an equal role in the home if we did so much would change i've been thinking about this a lot um in reference to you know roe v wade being overturned in the us how abortion and unwanted pregnancy is still seen as almost 100 percent a women's issue another book came out recently i don't know if you've seen it it's called ejaculate responsibly and the author makes the case the obvious case, every unwanted pregnancy and therefore every abortion is 50% the man's responsibility, if not more so, because a man can make a woman pregnant 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. A woman can become pregnant during a small window in her ovulation cycle. So I think this is a huge, this is almost like the kind of unfinished work of the feminist movement is about making men equally responsible for pregnancy, child rearing, child care, nurturing caregiving in general. This goes against what is often one of the biggest arguments for women having kids. This is our biological imperative. If you are born with a womb, you are built to bear and raise children. And this is something that is being overturned and that I think women of my generation, your generation and younger generations is sort of not tasked with overturning. I don't want to put that pressure on anybody. That's part of our work as feminists, as women in the world today. It's definitely, yes, yes to everything. <laughs> it's interesting. We were talking about this right before we started our conversation here um, about how in theory we, we could think that with all the like conversations around flexible work that started through the lockdowns, especially um, around the world and in the West, that it would enable flexible working for people who are parents. But really, it's flexible working for mothers, right? Like the, the predominant load of domestic labor fell on, and this is entirely heteronormatively speaking, but fell on women in mixed gender couples. And it, it didn't really, like we don't talk about how all of this changed things for men and gave them space to become father or like be fathers in addition to being valuable meaningful contributors in the workplace and it's it, it, it almost feels like we're stuck where like how do you move forward when everything in some ways is just like flipped and reinforces the existing power dynamics 
absolutely. I think this is a huge part of what the, you know, the whole movement around gender identity and the whole progress that's being made in the area of gender is sort of addressing this in a way. Again, speaking in very binary terms, you could see that women have been allowed to be more like men. Men haven't been allowed to be more like women, or rather, I wouldn't even maybe allowed, but also encouraged. Women have been encouraged to be more like men. Because if we're more like men, then we have more chance of, quote unquote, succeeding in this patriarchal society, right? Perhaps men don't want to be more like women. The fact that men have, don't want to be more like women, weaker, more dependent, less autonomous, <laughs> is because women are still disadvantaged under patriarchy. And so I think that conversations around gender and what gender is and how we embody our gender are part of a very progressive conversation that is still being had around gender roles and why the feminine gender, whoever is embodying that gender, is still diminished, undervalued, not unsupported um, in patriarchal society. It's it, it almost feels impossible. And then when you get look at it systemically, and then you look at it in our own lives. And this is a big premise of this podcast is like trying to really break down the big things into little things. Mm. It's almost a question we were talking about, you know, around this conversation. And one of my colleagues mentioned, well, let's break this down. How do, how do you have this conversation when you're starting to date someone? about gender roles, right? Like, how do you even get started? At what point, which date do you say, hey, let's talk about how we intend to navigate gender roles within our relationship because this isn't something that we like, culturally do. So there, there, again, there isn't a model. And I'm curious right. how you have navigated that. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're right. We don't have role models for this. And this is part of the, the work of revolution, right? It is literally kind of forging a brand new path. It's turning old patterns, old behaviors, old beliefs on their head. That can be incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly intimidating, feel, because we're so, it's so easy to run on conditioned behavior. We're so deeply conditioned, as I talk about in the book, in terms of our emotional and cultural inheritance, what we inherit from our parents, what we inherit from society and generations who've come before, to go against that is extremely challenging, but it can also be very exhilarating when we're supported in it, right? And so, yeah, I think as you described, yes, if it's felt, um, previous for previous generations, it might have felt uncomfortable to talk about like, okay, we're gonna talk about having kids straight off the bat, you know, whether we actually wanna do that, when we're gonna do that, et cetera. I think what you, what you just suggested, how is, how is the, what are the roles in our, of our relationship going to be? Who's going to be responsible for what? When you're thinking about getting into a serious relationship with someone and making a life with someone, I think that's a really valid conversation to have. You know, I, um, I've been married to my partner, my husband for 20, or we've been together for 24 years at this point. <laughs> and it used to be that we followed quite traditional gender roles he would pay more for more things than I would. This is partly though, because he had a salaried career in the corporate world. He just earned a lot more money than I do. In the past four or five years, he's stepped back from that world and my career has taken off in new ways. And I found myself paying for a lot more and sort of taking more of a lion's share in terms of some of our financial responsibilities. And that's been, a, that's been an edge for me to address. Sometimes it feels unfair. I want him to pay <laughs> and I had to question, but do I, do I, is it fair? Is it fair to make him pay for everything? Or is it actually a good thing that I'm able to kind of like take more of the weight on that side of our relationship now? 
you know um and yeah i think this is just stuff that for us to all address and sort of um weigh for ourselves in our own relationships in our own lives as you say and anywhere we come up against that kind of uncomfortable like this isn't fair this isn't how it's supposed to be question why why not what would it look like if this was okay and this was the way it was supposed to be <laughs> and sort of leaning into the discomfort around changing some of that patterning changing some of that ingrained or conditioned behavior um, and actually basing our behaviors on the reality of our situation versus what this is how things should be i think a lot of the kind of you know a lot of the pushback against what can seem like some of the very limiting or outdated beliefs of older generations is a pushback against whatever says this is how things should be because how things should be doesn't apply to the world that we live in today and i think the fact that women should have children just doesn't apply to the world that we're living in today how things should be is also the reason why the world is as broken as it is right so we need a new set of rules right. and it's uh-huh. it's so hard at least for me to hold on to that sometimes when you're like up against the reality of just all of it right all of it yeah, it's it, it's really hard <laughs> in such tiny ways as well. Like one of the things that I have seen play out in workplaces often is the, your time as a non-parent is seen as less valuable than a parent's time, right? Like the value we associate with a parent because they have another human they're they're responsible for, but we are all responsible to other people. Where relationships might look different, right? The the families we create and to sustain ourselves with and support might look different and aren't recognized in those ways. And I find myself yeah. in those situations just like kind of shrinking and not saying anything because I don't know how to how to articulate, listen, I'm just as important as you are and my time is just as valuable even if I have not chosen to have a child like you have. And I'm curious about, again, like how do you navigate that? Like how do you have those really uncomfortable conversations? Because it's hard. It's really hard. And I, I don't necessarily have a clear answer. You're echoing something that I heard from a friend recently. He's actually a, a gay man. And he was saying that he feels a lot of pressure to have children. When are you going to become a dad? And he's like, that's just not something I want. But he was also sharing that in his workplace, he recently had to wait to book his holiday time until all the people with children had booked their time because they had more different hours that they could go or different times that they could take. And it just felt deeply unfair. I think this is a conversation that will be brought up more and more among sort of HR departments in workplaces as HR departments are tasked with thinking about equity across the board, right? So I think these are these are new conversations that will need to be spoken about in terms of policy and in terms of how we address people's reproductive identity. I came across a, um, a new stream of research on the emerging concept of reproductive identity. This is by a professor at Columbia University. She thinks that our reproductive identity, how, how we engage with our procreative potential is as important when it comes to things like gender, age, race, socioeconomic status, religion, when it comes to our identity, like our formation itself, but also how we are perceived and how we are treated by others in the world and so she's pushing for a for that to be brought into the public consciousness and to be taken into consideration around subjects like this but yeah in terms of i think part of me has just accepted that 
I will to a degree be seen as selfish or self-indulgent by some people and that that's their opinion and they're entitled to their opinion and that my truth is my truth and that's that's fine that's all I need to know you know with that comes me also checking in with myself am I being an integrity am I being lazy am I kind of opting out of something here when I could be contributing something more is this self-care or is this just I don't know, <laughs> me having a lazy day. Not that it's not okay to have a lazy day. Sometimes those are very necessary. But if I'm being called up to kind of like act or participate and I'm sort of saying, no, I don't have time. Do I really not have time? Or am I trying away from something where I could actually contribute something useful? So yeah, for me, the main thing though is just accepting that people are going to have their opinions about me and that they're going to have their opinions about my life. And there's a very little I can do about that. All I can really do is live my life with integrity um, and that's it. <laughs> I, I really love the idea of also like checking in with yourself regularly around these types of conversations as well because we have to like sustain ourselves and like you can't pour from an empty cup and if you're constantly like embattled in any sense or like trying to prove your worth, it becomes really difficult to just keep going and keep going on. Did, was this always a practice for you or was this something that you came to with time where you recognized, hey, listen, these are the types of conversations I'm really practiced at having. I'm really good at having now so I can just do it. And these are the situations that I know I'm going to struggle in. So let me just like step back and decide if I have the energy today. I think that for me, and this goes back to my work with Sober Curious, removing alcohol from my life just created so much clarity about what was going on for me internally, emotionally, in terms of my energy levels, in terms of my relationships, boundaries, all that sort of stuff. Drinking the way that I used to, which was like normal social drinking, smoothed over so many of those kind of like cracks in a way. Um, removing alcohol made me realize very clearly all the places I was really leaking my energy, being taken advantage of, um, and sort of using and directing my energy in ways that weren't helpful to me or to other people. And so over the past sort of like seven, eight years, as I've slowly removed alcohol from my life, I've just been able to get much more clear about my motivations, about when I'm in integrity, when I'm not in integrity, when I need a boundary, when I need to let people in more, when I, when I have more to offer. So that has been, yeah, a real work in progress. <laughs> but um, I'm feeling much more confident about it now. And also, it's been a huge lesson in self-acceptance, just really acknowledging the things I am not capable of and, and being okay with that as well. Like sometimes I'm just not available and it's not a weakness and it's not selfish. It's just who I am and that's okay, you know? There's, there's so much power in that and so much power and even like those words associated like selfish, weak, it's enough. Enough is a word we think about. I think about a lot. Oh, we talk to... Yeah a lot it's just like when will we ever be will we ever be enough probably not so let's let's stop trying right let's work <laughs> for ourselves um yeah other things I wanted to ask you about you had this beautiful line which I wrote down about the areas of life that have been ring fenced by conventions of motherhood and the four areas you mentioned were purpose family love and legacy and mm -hmm. the one that to me is like the most for me personally most clearly related to motherhood is family because mm -hmm. Traditionally, that's how families are created. And for those of us who have to or choose to find and create new types of families in different ways, it's really daunting sometimes. And this kind of harkens back to where we started this conversation of 
how do you even begin to find your people when it's such a lonely space and there aren't like clubs for people who are choosing not to be mothers or fathers, people who are like, hey, I, I'm, I'm taking a step back or, hey, I'm questioning and I'm not sure, right? Like mm-hmm. that we're kind of this silent minority in some ways um, or even not a minority or these conversations are had in spaces like this one where you and I will talk about it, but the people listening to this wouldn't know where to turn and how to begin like creating space for for the support structures that we all need to exist in the world and the community, we all need to feel a sense of belonging and to like have people to lean on and like celebrate with and create ritual with. How did, how did you go about navigating that and like architecting what family looked like for you? There's a whole chapter on the concept of found family, um, which is obviously central as you just eloquently described the lives of any people without children, like women, men and women um, and people of every gender expression. And yeah, I think firstly, the more we talk about this, the more people get comfortable with talking about this, the more we'll start to find each other. There are, I, I navigated this path solo for two decades, as I mentioned, but since I started researching this book, I've discovered there are a few, there are several groups out there for voluntarily child, the child free community and also for involuntarily childless people. Um, there's there's they're few and far between so hopefully there will be more i mean i would encourage anyone who's listening to start a women without kids book club read the book together and you'll have firm friends by the end of it i guarantee <laughs> um but yeah it can be very lonely and isolating i recently moved to a new city um and i realized that when you don't have children and you don't drink alcohol and you work for yourself you don't work for a company those are the three main ways that people meet new people. So I think it's about being very intentional and again, going against the discomfort of like reaching out to people, inviting yourself to things, inviting people to things, maybe hosting your own meetup or or, or, or putting it out there in some other way. Like, hey, I'm looking for more people to connect with around this thing. Um, I'm hoping that the majority of people listening will probably have one if not more friends in their network who they do feel a sense of kinship with and when I talk about kinship um I'm talking about the sense of I can really be myself with this person I could depend on this person in a time of need um it's okay to be vulnerable with this person I would be willing to help this person if they reached out to me um and then I would suggest maybe test that out with this person maybe have that conversation with them hey listen I don't have a partner um I'm not starting a family. Are you okay to be my person? Can I put you down in my phone as like my person, you know, as like in times of need kind of thing. And maybe just like, I think even to be asked that, you know, could be really nice in a way of kind of starting to form those connections. But I think it is about intentionality. It's very easy when we follow all the quote unquote rules and we do what society tells us to do, we can kind of like find people by default, you know? Um, And I think when you're going against the grain in any area of life, you need to be, it requires a degree of intentionality, which again can be uncomfortable, confronting, embarrassing, (laughs) et cetera. (laughs) Um, But yeah. When you look back, this is probably a question you get asked all the time, but when you look back like to your 23 year old self or your 30 year old self, the person who's listening to this basically and they're navigating the questioning or the decision and 
their or they're a friend of someone who's navigating the questioning or decision or their loved one of someone who's navigating the questioning or decision is there something that you wish that you could say to your younger self is there something that you wish you had done at that point or a conversation you had had the the courage or the knowledge to have so much about the world has changed since i was 23. like honestly the environmental piece wasn't even a question then the economy looked quite different housing market looked quite different um I think there are many, it's actually probably easier in a way now to point to, well, here's here, this, this, and this, you know? Um, but above all, I think for me, what always worked was just touching base with my real inner knowing. I don't want this in my life. For a long time, it was, I don't want this in my life right now. And that was enough. And that was sort of all I needed to know. So it was all I needed anyone else to know, really. So long as I could stay true to my own knowing, it didn't really matter. I mean, I was influenced, as I said, other people's questions, opinions sort of made me question myself. But when I got quiet and stripped all of that away, the inner sense of like, this is right for me right now was enough. And I would encourage people to trust yourself, trust yourself really, truly above all else, trust yourself. You know, in the, in the book, I talk about at the end of the book, I'm like, if you've reached the end of this book and you're realizing that oh wait, maybe I, maybe I do want a child or that is something I'm open to, then fantastic, trust that, you know, in which case maybe it is time to really start thinking about, well, if, economy, if, if finance is an issue, if climate is an issue, then what can I do to kind of address those things so that I, I am available for, for motherhood, you know? I also really like the, that you touched on the right now because there's, there's so much, especially when we're considering bringing a child into the world, hopefully for a very long time, right? And it is a decision that will have ramifications or a choice if you get to make the choice that will have ramifications for a very long time. Well, for the rest of your life. Yep. And and the flip side of it is if you are a person who says you don't want to have children, if you're especially if you're a woman who says you don't want to have children, you often hear, oh, well, don't worry, you'll change your mind later on. <laughs> don't right? worry. Exactly. <laughs> yep. You're going to change your mind. So like, this is just like a whim of youth. And it's it's almost like a how do you balance that where it's even if it is a whim of youth, or even if it is a decision that you, you choose to make a different one down the line, it still is valid right now for you Absolutely. to make that, that choice right now for yourself. Absolutely. And I think you could respond by saying you're right, I might. <laughs> no, I don't know, because they're saying you will change your mind. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, like, the way I feel about it now, I would, I would feel quite angered by a comment like that. I think it's incredibly manipulative. I think it's incredibly intrusive. It's incredibly presumptive and it's very disrespectful. And the way I feel about it now and the confidence I've gained also from not drinking, I might actually say that to the person depending on who they were. <laughs> um, who, who are you to know my mind? Seriously, who are you to know my mind? Um, and I think that's absolutely valid. <laughs> it's just so like, it's such a personal decision and it's a deci decision that impacts so much. Like how could anyone else claim to know better about what you want? I think there is, there's a couple of things. I think that for people who have found their fulfillment, their joy, their purpose in parenthood, the thought of somebody not experiencing that might bring up pain for them. Like, how could, oh, this is so wonderful. I want you to have that. Often it's not coming from that place, but I think it's it can, in a very valid way, be coming from that place. And the other factor, which is the sort of unfortunate um, biological factor, is that 
women's fertility does end, there is a cutoff point. And I think that causes a lot of stress for people. And like I said, it, uh, this, this sort of the questioning only really properly ebbed away from me so that I could come back to that inner truth that had been there all along. After I sort of reached my early 40s, and honestly, I started looking ahead to menopause. I was like, this is the next sort of big life phase for me. Like, what's, how do I feel about that? And it was actually looking ahead to menopause that I realized, oh, wait, not one cell in my being is saying, you've got to do it now. You missed the boat. Oh my God, the time is now. Not one. It was just, oh, I'm quite excited to see what that transition brings, actually. Not having PMS every month. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, and, the, and I talk about the, the book I read that really helped me feel that way about menopause, almost kind of excited about it. So, yeah, I think the biological clock is obviously a huge um, issue. And for so many people, they want to keep the option open and their circumstances play a role in it, right? Where yes. the world is in lots of different ways. People haven't found a partner and don't want to be a single parent or can't afford to be a single parent. And then there's like, here's an option. But also it plays into what you're saying where there, I imagine there are a lot of people who are listening and wondering, what if I get to that point and I haven't had a child? And what if I don't feel like Ruby did at that moment? Yeah. Another big part of what I talk about in the book is this idea that what if we can't have it all? What if we don't get everything we want? Can we still be happy with our life if not everything works out the way we want it to? Can we still appreciate the life that we've got? Can we appreciate the life that we're living, regardless of whether we have these external things? And in a way, a a biological family, a baby is an external thing in the most sort of (laughs) basic of terms, right? Can I still enjoy my life if not everything works out exactly how I I wanted it to or exactly how it looks like in the movies, you know, Um, or exactly how it was for my parents or exactly how it is for my best friend or my sister? I love um, Emma Gannon's book, Olive. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a novel which follows a, a child-free woman sort of navigating all of her friends having kids. I think she writes about it really beautifully. But that's been a big part of my sort of practice around this, just really appreciating if this today is my life and this is how my life is going to be, can I enjoy this? Can I appreciate this? What's great about it? You know, maybe there's some sadness. How can I just make space for that sadness to be there and not let it take over my whole life and and stop me living and enjoying my life i feel like that's such necessary work for all of us whatever because no one is ever going to have a perfect life and being able to like sit with the discomfort of things not working out in whatever way they don't work out or in whatever way the world disappoints us there's like there there's yeah. parts, right we have to keep fighting to make a better world and also we have to be able to like live in the world that that we live in and to hold both, which leads very beautifully into my final question, which is a very cheesy one that we ask, which is this podcast is called Little Revolutions. And it's about how there's so much that is systemic, that is cultural, that is the way we live right now that that is difficult or that doesn't give us space to be who we are and exist how we are. But also change comes both in the large sweeps of change and often in the little revolutions of the day to day. And for someone who is navigating this being childless, being not being a mother, whether by circumstance, by choice, whatever it might be, what little revolutions or someone else who is invested in building a better world for all of us, what little revolutions can, can we make in our lives to, to make the world just a little bit like kinder and hold space for everyone? 
oh god there's so much so many right just to kind of like carry on from what i was saying before i was almost going to say we live in a society that sort of like peddles this idea that the more stuff we can have the more we accumulate the more we can add on to our life the more experiences we can have the better and as much as that can be really inspiring and exciting it can also be really detrimental because i don't think human beings are meant to do have be everything right <laughs> um and so yeah we live in this in the in western nations capitalist consumerist nations we live in a culture where more is better and if you're not doing everything and having everything then you're somehow missing out and i think that a little revolution can be just to question that and to actually really value what we do have right now um and to question what we're going after because society says we should versus what we actually need um so that's one i suppose um and that's a, that's actually a, a little revolution that can have profound impacts on the world how much am i consuming why am i consuming in this way what's the greater impact of me consuming in this way you know i think in the last chapter i talk about the environmental piece um and how overconsumption stems from that mindset of like the more I can have, the more I can amass, the more I can do, the better. And I think the more we can just appreciate where we're at right now, be grateful for where we're at right now, gives us also a lot of compassion for people who don't have the same opportunities as us and who don't have the same, yeah, access as us, um, the same developments, making their lives kind of better, more simple, whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's actually a really that's actually a really big, potentially quite a big revolution in thought. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> it makes sense as well right like questioning has to be the first step and questioning as like a little revolution has so much power because it really changes has the potential to change everything so exactly and then also to kind of like to reiterate the piece about family I do think revolutionizing how we think about family is a really huge one are we thinking about our biological relatives are we thinking about our friendships if we're thinking of our friends as our family our sole family our chosen family whatever then what does that actually look like how can we be more available for each other how can we depend on one another more you know sometimes asking for help can be as valuable in terms of building connections as offering help um and so i think that's especially, you know, you read so much about our crisis of disconnection, which has just only been exacerbated by COVID. Um, and so a big thing that came out of writing the book for me was just a realization that if I want to experience a sense of family in my life, then it is on me to do a lot, to do the outreach and to really check in with my friends a lot more regularly and to engage with them in ways that go beyond just kind of like general chit chat and catching up. And so that I think is another little revolution that can have a big impact on our lives. I love that. I think the asking for help is so, so difficult and so necessary. And it's for me, it's a practice that I've only like, I've moved countries many times. And when I came to London, I have no family really on the continent. I was like, hey, my friends are my family. What does that mean? It means I have to actually like, list them as my emergency contacts. And I have to ask like, when there's a lockdown, and I need people to be with, I have to actually go to their homes. When someone is in crisis, I have to show up as well in the way that they need me to without them feeling like they have to ask every time so we can build communication yeah. with each other. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that reformatting and how we 
how we actually physically create family and how we think about family is going to be more of the work that the generations coming through are going to find ourselves engaged with for multiple reasons. You mentioned, um, you know, having lived in multiple different countries, that's sort of become maybe not the norm, but much more normalized. And um, yeah, one of the offshoots of globalization is the fragmentation of family and sort of cultural connections and how we remake those connections and those sort of vital kinships groups is going to be a really important part of how we move forward also feels like for me at least a very exciting thing that we get to like reimagine we're reimagining the big things but we're also reimagining very much like how we live on the day-to-day and like the yeah. and support systems and all of that exactly yes exactly is there anything else i should have asked you that i didn't <laughs> I don't think so. No. I mean, I suppose one sentiment that I that just came up as you were talking there in terms of little revolutions, actually, you know, when we look at these big, grand sort of demographic trends that show the birth rate is falling globally. It's easy to forget that that's because of millions and millions of individual human decisions that have a huge impact on individual human lives. And I think supporting people and having empathy for the decisions that we're making regardless of it's if it's direct and clear cut as to have a child or not to have a child but it might be where do i want to live how am i going to make my money who am i going to form my family with the more we can be supportive of each other's individual choices and decisions the more smoothly these huge societal transitions will be able to unfold Um, with the least collateral damage in terms of people's mental, emotional, physical well-being as possible. I think it's also what you touched on is it just gave me chills as a reminder that it's so easy to feel like we're tiny people and the world is big and nothing we do has impact or has very little impact. But collectively, we have so much power. And if we all move with intention, we can make big changes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Ruby for this insightful conversation. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi, and I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps.